written comment by email to the Government Audit and Oversight Committee Clerk at Stephanie, S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E, dot Cabrera, C as in California, A, B as in Bay, R-E-R-A, at sfgov.org. You may also send your written comments via U.S. Postal Service to our office in City Hall at 1 Dr. Carlton B. Goodlett Place, room 244, San Francisco, California, 94102. If you submit public comment in writing, it will be forwarded to the supervisors and included as part of the official file. Finally, items acted upon today are expected to appear on the Board of Supervisors agenda of May 16th, unless otherwise stated. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Please call items one and two together. Item number one is an ordinance adopting and implementing the Memorandum of Understanding between the City and County of San Francisco and San Francisco Firefighters Union Local 798, Unit 1. And item number two is an ordinance adopting and implementing the Memorandum of Understanding between the City and County of San Francisco and San Francisco Firefighters Local Uni Union Local 79, sorry, 798, Unit 2. For those joining us remotely, if you haven't done so already, please dial star three to be added to the speaker queue. The system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand. When we go to public comment, please wait until the system indicates that you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Clerk. And before we get started with these items, uh, Supervisor Chan. Thank you, uh, Chair. I just want to be on the record that uh, I do. we are a proud firefighter family, and uh, my partner has been a firefighter since 2011 and now a fire prevention inspector, but I have confirmed and checking with our city attorney and our deputy city attorney, and Pearson has confirmed that uh, I do not need to recuse myself on this decision and, uh, and will be happy to support. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Supervisor Chan. And so we have today uh, presenting on this item uh, artist uh, Graham from uh, DHR, Employee Relations Director, and, uh, and the DHR team, uh, including Steve Ponder and uh, Mawuli Tugbenyo. Uh, and so we will uh, turn it over to you, uh, Mr. Graham, with thanks for uh, the advanced briefing on this and all the work to get this uh, this far. The floor is yours. The board. Um, we do have an extra DHR member today because Oakland Unified's teachers are on strike, so I got a five-year-old member here, so he may have, you know, something to add later, so just to be advised. Will he be doing the presentation? Well, you know, he may, he may need to be our expert witness on some questions that come up. We'll see. Um, happy May the 4th, by the way. All right, so uh, thanks again for having us. So what you see in front of you now is the charter factors that we utilize when bargaining with any bargaining unit. We've gone over these before when we met with, PO, with you about the POA contract, um, but, and they're, they're the same. Um, and so as you can see here, we look at things like inflation, we look at the wages in other markets, um, et cetera, and the, ability of the, the city's ability to pay as well. One of the things we looked at with the fire department um, is their recruitment and retention. And as you may recall, we had a very similar slide up for um, 
the police department. And so in the police department, you saw, we saw a decline of staff of that almost 8%. Here you see that the fire department has been able to increase staff by 3.5%. Um, and in both cases, we were not able to run academies um, or, or trainings during the pandemic, so, but we had retirements and other reasons why people left. So they, were, they are both understaffed. And so the fire department is working now uh, assertively to try to fully staff up. And as you can see, um, we you know, have been able to add hires. We still have 73 retirees and seven resignations. So as you can see, the resignations aren't as significant as they were with the POA. So we just had a different set of factors that we were looking at in terms of our current staff level. Here you can see where the city of San Francisco compares in the market of the Bay Area around compensating our firefighters. And as you can see, we do compensate our firefighters well within the marketplace. Um, going into bargaining, we believe we'll be number two subsequent to this contract taking effect. Um, I guess it all depend on what Hayward does, but we do believe we'll be number two once this is completed. Here you can see what the firefighter retirements look like. And you can see that the retirements really peak at year 21. Um, and then there's a series of retirements thereafter. Retirements were of concern for us because, as I mentioned earlier, the fire department is understaffed uh, as a result of the, of the pandemic and not being able to hire during that time. The department is working, as I said before, to uh, hire as many firefighters as they safely can effectively train. The, there is still a lot, great deal of interest in the community in being a San Francisco firefighter. Um, so we anticipate that in a few years they'll be fully staffed. Here on this slide, you can see the wage summary. Um, and so the basic wage pattern was established in bargaining with the POA and with 798, we, we were able to come to agreement with both of those units that the wage pattern would be the same. Um, and you can see there are also, in this contract, there is a delay of six months uh, if the city's budget uh, has a projected deficit of 300 million in the first, on the first increase and a 12-month delay if, <clears throat> if that should happen again in the second year. Um, also, you can see there is a 2% increase uh, in retention pay beginning at year 21, because as you saw in the previous slide, that's when we saw a peak in retirements, and we're trying to retain people um, as, as the department is able to become fully staffed. The term is three, three years. Um, you can see we also added a couple holidays. One of the issues that has happened over the last few years, um, the last two years, I guess, there was a lot of firefighters had to work a lot of mandatory overtime. Um, and that mandatory overtime really uh, was, you know, resulted in a struggle for individual firefighters and their families, as well as for the department from a scheduling standpoint. We, uh, you know, are addressing that on both fronts. The department has worked very closely with 798 to try to address it you know, on an internal basis. We also looked at some additional holidays where people call in sick. Um, and so they're not technically holidays. It's Mother's Day and Halloween, but those are a couple of days when people call in sick. And so the 798 agreed to um, allow us to have uh, some restrictions around people calling in sick on those days uh, to try to address this issue of mandatory overtime. And then in addition, um, they also agreed um, to 2% additional holiday pay. 
So those are the sort of significant increases in compensation is the retention pay and this 2% in holiday pay. And then we also added an emergency child care um, pilot program similar to the one that's in the POA contract for the purposes of when people are held over because of a mandatory overtime or it's whatever sort of the situation may be and I have trouble getting their children. This is a pot of money to kind of help compensate for you know the additional expense of that. This is the total contract cost over the next three years. Um, you can see it's 15.6 million in year one, 33.4 million in year two, and 54 million in year three for a total three-year cost of 103,710. Um, so, and 1% is about $4.3 million. And lastly, um, you know, this is the impasse resolution procedure. Uh, you, again, you're familiar with this procedure from our presentations regarding POA. Um, and you know, we, we bring this to you. You can, we certainly hope you ratify it. We don't have to go to impasse, but there it is. Um, available to take questions. Thank you very much. Um, and I, I have a, a couple questions. Um, or, or more, it, some are more comments. So just on the, um, you know, on the POA contract, we talked a lot about the retention pay there, tar which targeted the folks with much shorter tenures, um, where here this is um, at that year 21. And, you know, I just want to reiterate a point I made at the last one. Like to the extent we're looking in the future at retention pay, I think we should be beefing up the sort of basis for arguing that the increase will retain someone that and that is with exit interviews and really looking at uh, if people are, are leaving you know over the money or not here I have no issue with it whatsoever because I, I mean I actually view it much more as like a longevity I mean whatever you call it is much more of a longevity bonus than a, than a uh, retention pay amount uh, to have that kick in after 20 years is is to me a not a non-issue so I so I support it but I but I do think as we're bringing these things forward if they're being framed as retention I think there should be a, something that we're basing the assumption that the reten that that retention bonuses are gonna are gonna keep people uh, and and in particular around the the lack of sort of comprehensive exit interview uh, data and I don't know if you can comment on that I don't know if maybe fire has more comprehensive data or if DHR does uh, but really the same same issue I raised uh, yeah we, we understand your position supervisor and we yeah. appreciate that and we'll use that going forward um, here it's just you know, deferring retirements, right? So it's just an incentive to defer retirements. Makes sense, thank you. Um, the other thing I also just wanted to flag, we talked about this before, I do think it should be standard in these presentations that we have some sense of overtime pay in these presentations and just just quantifying that, both average and, uh, and, and some data on that, especially when we're making the case that to be competitive with other jurisdictions, um, that, that part we're comparing it to, to only compare the base uh, the base salary and not be looking at the realities of overtime I think is an incomplete picture but I also understand you have some there's some challenges getting that data so I look forward to figuring out how we can work together if there are any avenues to trying to get a sense of how we compare with other jurisdictions uh, on the overtime front as well. I, I, and I recognize that that's may not, I mean, maybe you can speak to this, it may not be as easily obtainable, but I think, I think we should, that should be standard for us when we're 
presenting publicly and telling folks what, whether it's firefighters or anyone else, what they earn, that we're looking at not just salary, but overtime data. Understood, and we did look at the average overtime that our firefighters earn, which is about $47,000 a year last year. But as I mentioned before, there was a lot of mandatory overtime that people had to work. Um, so we anticipate that the number of hours, which is about 500 per person on average, which is a lot of extra hours to work, right? Um, we anticipate that that will go down as the department continues to staff up. Great, Supervisor Chan. Thank you, Chair uh, Preston. I I think this is very similar to what I have said during the PO, POA uh, or just the police MOU you know, process. This is not really for to, to speak on the MOU itself, but you know, as I have offered with the, the police department and really moving forward in terms of upcoming budget process, but really also thinking about the overall operation of the city department. And, I, and as I have acknowledged the POA's presence, I wanna acknowledge the local 798 officers, you know, uh, for uh, Rollins and Swells Adam Wood being here with us and just wanted to say that you know looking forward to continue sort of um, some of the uh, progress that we have made with city departments um, training um, just making sure that our firefighters similarly to any other first responders that the training continues uh, making sure that they, you know, seeing the overtime that is actually putting on our first responders, that we really want to make sure that they are well taken care of physical and mental health. Um, and, and I think those are the things that are really worthwhile to talk about. I think it's very, um, just concur with the sentiment with Chair Preston about overtime is, is not a long-term strategy in terms of, um, especially for first responders. So I look forward to that conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Vice Chair Stephanie. Thank you, and I actually uh, agree with that too, Supervisor Chan, um, definitely not a long-term strategy, and also want to acknowledge Local 798, um, love our fire department, and um, very supportive of this contract. And just um, wanted to give a shout out to uh, the provision regarding the emergency child care. I think that's so important, especially given the overtime and the constraints that puts on um, parents. And just had a quick question about why it's a pilot program and why is it sunsetting on uh, June 30th, 2026? It's a pilot program just because we're seeing how effective and whether or not it works and do people take advantage of it, et cetera. That's all. Thank you, Vice Chair. Uh, Stephanie, I just have one more question on the, um, the provision that 11.2, the parity provision that kind of tethers some of these to the police officer increases. What What is the origins and purposes of, of that provision? I, I don't know what the historical origin is, to be candid with you. I do know that parity provisions in police and fire contracts were very common. Uh, at one time, they are no longer common, uh, but that was something that was commonly done in, throughout the region. Thank you. Um, if there are no further questions, I, I want to echo the, th the thanks to uh, 798 and to DHR uh, and, uh, and all our fire firefighters for their crucial work. And to open this up, uh, Madam Clerk, to public comment. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Are there any members of the public who would like to make public comment for items number one and two? Please line up along the curtain wall to your right. 
Remote public call-in members, please dial star three to be added to the speaker queue. For those already on hold, please continue to wait until the system indicates that you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. You may approach the lectern. Uh, thank you. Memorandum of understanding to the Fighters Union. Yesterday I attended the police commission hearing and um, it was a very long hearing. I didn't, I, I didn't want to take up any time. I didn't get the chance to go up and speak. But when I left, I was outside at the performing arts garage and I was assaulted by two people, by two gay men. I was assaulted. And now it's a matter that I should have really called the police. And I was assaulted. I was, I was, I don't know why they don't, maybe they don't want to come, they don't want me to see, they, they, they don't want me to be here and, uh, and, and, and talk or, you know, share my public comments. But listen, um, there's, there's a, as, as the fire, I mean, there's, there's a crime being committed here, you know, with this, under, with this memorandum here. It's a crime. You got to find out who these people are. Who are these people that are doing this? You know what I mean? So we got to find out who they are. It's taken a long time and they're, and they're, they're assaulting me. And I, you know, I don't, I I don't know, I don't know what's going interruption. on. So I what, I'm, what I want to tell the firefighters is, you're you're intruders. Hang, you're, hang on one second. And then pardon me, Speaker. I do need to ask that you stay on the subject of the fire department's what, MOU. What, what, I, what I'm saying to the fire department is that they're intruders. These, these are intruders. These are latent intruders that are in your house. Okay, they they they, they burrow a hole in there for 30 years, and they're there. They're intruders. Firefighters are intruders. And what this memorandum says is it's okay. It's okay for them to intrude on you, you know? I have nowhere to go, you know what I mean? So you have to look at the language in the memorandum. It says it's okay to intrude in your house, you know? In some cultures, your house is your castle. It's your, it's your, it's, it's your private domain. But these firefighters think they can come in there and do whatever they want. And then, you know, they, they tell you, don't show yourself. Don't show yourself. They tell you as little kids, they come, they come to your classroom and, and, give, and give speeches. They say, don't show yourself to anybody. Don't tell your family who you are. You know, that's what they say to your kids, okay? These firefighters, I say that to your kids in school. Your teachers, everybody you know, they, they say that to your kids. And what are they doing all along? They're killing off your family members. They're killing them off, you know what I mean? So these firefighters, look at the language in the memorandum. That's what it says, all right? So. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker, please. Good morning, supervisors. Uh, my name is Adam Wood. I'm a San Francisco firefighter, District 7 re uh, resident, and uh, secretary of Local 798. I just wanted to speak on the MOU. Our, our members ratified this contract, uh, not unanimously and with some frustration, just, I think, primarily bred through exhaustion over the last three years of working through the pandemic uh, with the levels of mandatory overtime that artists mentioned. I, I just want to paint a little bit clearer picture of what life is like in the fire department right now, just to let you know what we're looking at going forward. Hiring has resumed after the year and a half of being unable to put together safely a fire department academy, but the Hiring has not kept up with the accelerated rates of retirement concentrated in the suppression ranks, the folks in the firehouse, uh, and or with the expansion of administrative positions, primarily in the world, in the very positive development of our community paramedicine programs. But many of those positions have pulled people out of the field. So our ranks in suppression in the firehouses are still below where they were even in 2017, much less in 2019 before the pandemic began. So we've dug ourselves a hole because of the age of our workforce, 
the increased workload, especially over the last three years, and the inability to hire for a full year and a half, that it is going to take us a number of years to climb out of. We've got 200 members eligible for retirement now. Whether or not they all take that step immediately or not will really depend, I think, on how well they can handle the, the increased stress and workload that's forced upon them by today's uh, fire load, the need to address the homeless crisis with our members being the first line of defense in that, in that area, and uh, the need to expand our ability to deal with o the opioid crisis and mental health problems on the street. So we're going to need your help. We're going to need your help going forward. This contract is not going to solve our future problems. I apologize in one for blow. the interruption. Thank you for your comments today, Adam Wood. May we please have the next speaker? Good morning, supervisors. My name is Floyd Rollins. I am the elected president of Local 798. And I just wanted to come and say thank you for your support um, in this process. Um, as Adam said, we did ratify it. It was not an easy process because of everything that kind of went on and went down behind the scenes with regard to the negotiation. We came to the table with a broad spectrum of issues because, as Adam said, our members have been on the front line since the beginning of the pandemic. They've been there uh, risking their lives as well as their families' lives that they had to continue to interact with because we are expected to show up at work. And when we show up to work, we show up to work to defend and to protect the lives and property of the citizens of San Francisco. I am proud to say that our members continue to do that work and they will continue to do that work in an honorable manner. Um, what I hope in the future is that there is a more inclusive process with regard to the negotiation versus um, what we dealt with in essence. And I hope that we will be able to address some of the issues surrounding mental health, surrounding PTSD and PTSI, because it speaks volumes when you work with members that uh, suffer through this, but continue to show up day after day and put the uniform on and do the job that they were sworn to do. Um, I'm proud of my membership and the work that they continue to do, and I hope to engage in further um, meaningful conversation um, regarding those issues that we still face in the fire service and in the San Francisco Fire Department. So I want to thank you again for your support, and uh, we look forward to further conversation. Thank you. Thank you for your comments today, Mr. Rollins. We'll go now. If there are no other speakers here in the chamber, we'll go to our call-in line. We currently have one person on the line with zero in the queue to speak. There are no speakers. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Public comment on these two items is now closed. And unless there are further uh, comments, want to reiterate um, our thanks to 798 uh, and, and all uh, firefighters for their work. Oh, I see uh, Vice Chair Stephanie is on the roster. Thank you. Yes, I, I just wanted to acknowledge the comments um, from Local 798 in terms of this contract is, is not the end of the discussion by any means on all the support we can give you here at the Board of Supervisors in terms of mental health and um, everything that we can provide the um, fire department. I know that Supervisor Chan is uh, the chair of our budget committee and she will be leading those conversations as they come up. But this is not the end of those discussions and we do appreciate your work because you are out on the front lines and do so much for us, so thank you. Thank you, Vice Chair Stephanie. And I fully agree and look forward to, to continuing to figure out how we can support. And I think you know, for members of the public to understand as 
as has been alluded to, that I think the most visible part of the work for our firefighters is obviously when there's a fire, but that's also just one part of the work. And I think for all of us seeing uh, so much of the work around addressing uh, folks who are experiencing drug overdoses, other medical conditions, just just uh, the scope of work that, that we go to on a daily basis, go to firefighters uh, to respond to. Um, and and I will say, and I, and I don't say this lightly, I, you know, that that while we often get a lot of varying feedback on different departments performing different functions, um, and it's not like the fire department doesn't have its own, you know, issues and stuff, but in terms of the public perception, I will say on behalf of my constituents, uh, especially through being in office through the pandemic, um, that it really has been uniformly um, positive feedback and appreciation from from my constituents around uh, how members of the fire department have handled the broad range of of issues with um, with skill and and with kindness through all this. So we, we are definitely want to make sure that we're supporting uh, mental health and other needs of firefighters the way uh, they're supporting the community. Uh, unless there are further comments, uh, I'd like to go ahead and uh, move uh, to forward this with recommendation uh, to the full board. Thank you. On the motion to forward both items one and two to the full board with a positive recommendation, Vice Chair Stephanie. Stephanie, aye. Member Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. Chair Preston. Aye. Preston, aye. You have three ayes. Thank you. The motion passes. Uh, Madam Clerk, please call item three. Item three is a resolution selecting Macias, Ginny, and O'Connell LLP as independent auditors for the controller's office and the separately audited departments of the city for an amount not to exceed approximately $6.8 million for a four-year contract term. For those joining us remotely, if you haven't already done so, please dial star three to be added to the speaker queue. The system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand. When we go to public comment, please wait until the system indicates that you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Um, today, I believe we are hearing from uh, Carmen LaFranc, uh, Financial Reporting Manager for the Controller's Office. Uh, welcome, and the floor is yours. Oh, thank you very much. I am just trying to remove the prior one. Let's see. I have, yeah, thanks, sorry, I need to shrink the other one first. And, let's see, and I believe you have, all have copies of the presentation as well, um, and it is on screen, let's see, where should be on the screen? Okay, so this is the contract with, uh, as um, we heard, selecting Macias, Jeannie, and O'Connell, LOP, as independent auditors for the controller's office uh, and the separately audited departments of the city for an amount not to exceed 
$1.8 million over a four-year contract term that would commence on July 1, 2023. And um, the Board of Supervisors, pursuant to Charter Section 2.115, selects the independent auditor to perform the annual financial audit of the controller's books. And then we talk a little bit about the bid process. In July 2022, the city selected MGO as the highest qualified scorer pursuant to the RFP for the following eight entities and areas. Um, the city's annual comprehensive financial report known as the ACFR uh, and the general city department audits, uh, Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital and Trauma Center, Laguna Honda Hospital, um, the single audit and other funds, uh, Treasure Island, which includes Treasure Island Development Authority. Um, they were also selected for the San Francisco Employees Retirement System, the Office of Community Investment and Infrastructure, um, San Francisco Health Service System, Port of San Francisco, San Francisco Finance Corporation, and various State of California project grants, as well as the City and County of San Francisco Retiree Health Benefit Trust Fund. Uh, the next slide shows what the not to exceed amounts are for the four years, uh, broken down by year. So you can see that the first year, and this is for the coming year, so for the fiscal year end 2023, uh, which will be paid for in the budget year of fiscal year 2024. Um, the audit services subtotal is 1.5 million as needed services subtotal 180,000 and then a grand total of 1 million seven uh, per year. Uh, as you can see, um, we do have a rate lock with them, uh, which does help with budgeting and keeping costs down over the four years. Um, I ask if anyone has any questions. Uh, we do also have supplemental slides which get into each of the areas in more detail if you have questions. Thank you very much for the presentation. Before we do questions, I believe we have a BLA report on this item, Mr. Menard. Thank you, good morning. Supervisors Nick Menard from the Budget Legislative Analyst Office. Item three is a resolution that would approve a a new auditing agreement between the controller's office and Macias Ginny O'Connell. The agreement has a four-year term uh, through June 2027, and it does have a not-to-exceed amount of $6.8 million. There is an optional three-year extension in the agreement, which would require Board of Supervisors approval um, to exercise. The audit will cover several areas, the audit services, including the annual comprehensive financial statement, audits of the enterprise and fiduciary funds and state and federal grant compliance. We show the budget for the audit work um, in the contract on page four of our report. It's really based on the number of hours worked um, with billing rates ranging from 104 to $380, which as was just noted are um, flat through the four-year contract. We do recommend approval. Thank you, Mr. Menard. Um, any comments or questions, colleagues? Let's open this item up for public comment. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Are there any members of the public who would like to make public comment for item number three? Please line up along the curtain wall to your right. Remote public call-in members, please dial star three to be added to the speaker queue. For those already on hold, please continue to wait until the system indicates that you have been unmuted. You may approach the podium. I know Macias and Jenny. 
I know Macias, Jenny, and O'Connell. The LLP, I know them. I went there. I visited their offices. These are, these are close, personal individuals, uh, uh, a law firm that I know very well. I know them very well. Why would I go there? You know? Why would I go to this Altusser, uh, Berzon, and Macias, Ginny, and O'Connell? Why would I go there? Why would I ask? Why would I confer power on this, organi- on this firm, on this organization? Why would I confer that power on them? You know? So, $6.8 million. I look up to them. I respect them. I, 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 conf- I gave them. I gave them. I gave them um, something. I gave them something, right? Why would I do that? You know? So, we got to go back to what the item before this. You want to go into this place. You want to go in there. You, know? you want to go into Macias Jenny. You want to. You know, that's, the, that's what it is at the, bottom, at the end of the day. I'm, 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 I'm a person that's incapable. I'm a person that's been, you know, from a very small school child told that I am disabled, that I, I have special needs, you know. So you want to go there. You want to. You, 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 that's what you want to do. You know what I mean? So uh, what I'm getting down to the bottom is, Macias, Jenny, O'Connell, you know, come here and let's talk again. Because there's a bad actor somewhere here. There's a bad actor somewhere here. You know, doesn't look very, uh, very, very highly on us. Very look, looks very down on us. And he wants to go in there. He wants to go in there. That's his life's mission. That's his life's goal. You know, so um, that's what it is at the end of the day. That's what it is. Okay, that's nothing, no, nothing else about it than that. And uh, you want to make money doing it. That's what, they, that's what it is. They want to make money doing it. Okay, that's what it is. Thank you for your comments today, Ephraim. Are there any other speakers in the chamber that would like to speak to this item before we move to the telephone line? Seeing no in-person speakers, we'll go to the telephone line where there's one listener with zero in the queue. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Public comment on this item is now closed. Um, and uh, I want to thank uh, the controller's office uh, for their presentation uh, and their work on this and also to the auditors uh, who we, we've worked with previously when the, the audits have come through and appreciate their uh, professionalism. For those in the public who are following all these audits, uh, just making clear this is, this is the independent auditors. We also have BLA you know, program audits, controller does audits, but this is uh, a crucial function in terms of uh, city government and the uh, soundness of uh, our financial operations in terms of having uh, independent auditors. I uh, fully support this measure, and I did uh, neglect to mention at the start, although he is not uh, in uh, committee with us today, that uh, that President Peskin uh, is the uh, sponsor uh, of this uh, of this resolution. So I'd like to move this forward uh, to the full board with recommendation, Madam Clerk. Thank you, and on that motion, Vice Chair Stephanie. Stephanie, I. Member Chan. Chan, I. Chair Preston. Aye. Preston, aye. The motion passes unanimously. Thank you. The motion passes. Um, Madam Clerk, please call uh, the fourth item on our agenda. Item number four is a hearing on findings and recommendations made in a November 17, 2022 City Services Auto Report entitled, The City Must Determine Whether United Council of Human Services, UCHS, should continue providing services to San Francisco residents despite continuing noncompliance with city agreements and updates on the 14 recommendations made to the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing to improve oversight of UCHS 
this programs, administration and compliance with grant agreement requirements and requesting the Office of the Controller and City Services Auditor to report. For those joining us remotely, if you haven't done so already, please dial star three to be added to the speaker queue. For the, please wait for the system prompt to indicate that you have raised your hand. When we go to public comment, the system will indicate that you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Clerk, and welcome to our speakers from the Controller's Office and Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. This item is sponsored by Vice Chair Stephanie. I want to thank you for uh, calling this uh, hearing and also turn it over to you for any opening remarks and to introduce uh, the speakers on this item. Thank you, Chair Preston. Yeah, I, I call for this hearing um, because I have serious concerns with respect how to, uh, as to how the city actually is managing our contracts with our nonprofits. You know, our nonprofits are tasked with taking care of so many different issues. We have incredible nonprofits uh, in providing very necessary services to uh, thousands of people and doing incredible work. And unfortunately, we've had many different stories detailing um, some scandals involving mismanagement of those contracts, and I think it reflects poorly on um, the individual nonprofit, and of course, I think the city's management of those contracts, and I think we ourselves can be doing better. It's why I'm working on legislation to really uh, drill down on how we can do better. Uh, the city relies on nonprofits to provide $1.4 billion in social services for our city's most vulnerable populations. And San Franciscans deserve accountability and transparency when it comes to how taxpayer dollars are spent. The most striking example of such mismanagement was publicized recently this past fall. The San Francisco Controller's Officer Office found the United Council of Human Services to be conspicuously out of compliance on numerous fiscal and procedural agreements. The short list of infractions includes UCHS improperly keeping rental revenue instead of turning it over to its fiscal sponsor, noncompliance with hiring processes, improper calculation of income for most tenants, and providing housing for ineligible applicants. This is what was reported to us through the audit. While we sit on edge of a looming fiscal crisis, I believe as a city we um, absolutely must do better and actually in helping our nonprofits as well. It's why I believe it's so important to shine a light on the work of the City Services Auditor. Thank you for all the work that you do and to provide an opportunity for the department to speak on how they will improve the monitoring and evaluation of such contracts moving forward. Uh, we have several um, people I think with us today um, to present. We have Mark De La Rosa, Director of Audits, thank you. And Amanda uh, Soberpena, did I say that correctly? Close enough? Soberpena. So, okay, I want to be exactly, not just close enough. Um, project manager with the Office of the Controller and Dylan Schneider, manager of policy and legislative affairs at HSH. Emily Cohen, deputy director for communications and legislative affairs at HSH. Noel Simmons, uh, chief, chief deputy officer and Gigi Whitley, both with deputy, deputy director of finance and administration with HSH as well. Um, with that, I'd like to invite Director De La Rosa to start us off, and we will have um, HSH provide uh, us with their presentation as well. So go ahead. Thank you. Good morning, Supervisors, Chair Preston, uh, Vice Chair uh, Stephanie, and Supervisor Chan, Mark De La Rosa, Director of Audits for the Controller's Office. I believe we have a, a presentation also that's going to be shown on the screen by one of our team members. Um, Thank you for the opportunity to present to you today our audit that we issued back in November 2022 
on the uh, Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing's grant agreements with uh, Bayview Hunters Point uh, Foundation as fiscal sponsor uh, to the United Council of Human Services, or UCHS. I'm joined today by Amanda Sobrepeña, uh, who will be co-presenting with me highlights of, of some of the audit findings and recommendations from our report. Just wanted to acknowledge also the team that worked on this, Winnie Wu, um, Juan Pacheco, and Celina Wong for their work on this engagement. Uh, before turning it over to Amanda, just wanted to highlight some introductory notes on the next page. Um, this report that we issued back in November was actually a, um, an audit that was requested by the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. This audit, as issued, had four overarching findings and 14 recommendations, all of which the department either concurred or partially concurred with. As you know, the process that we go through in CSA um, audits division is that we follow our generally accepted government auditing standards, ensuring that all of our findings and recommendations are based on appropriate and sufficient evidence. As you also know, every six months after issuance of an audit report, we follow up on recommendations. Uh, for this particular audit that is before you, we are in the process of, uh, of collecting information uh, that will be reported as part of our annual report um, that will be issued at the end or at the beginning of actually next fiscal year for all of our audit recommendations implementation status. Um, with that, let me turn it over to Amanda Sobrepeña for the audit presentation. Thank you, Mark. Good morning, supervisors. I'd like to begin with a brief timeline of the city's contracting background and history with UCHS. In 2009, Human Services Agency transitioned its agreements with UCHS to a fiscal agent due to deficiencies it found in UCHS's financial record keeping. In 2016, the department requested an audit of these agreements as they were transferring to the newly created Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. After the issuance of our 2017 audit report, HSH contracted a new fiscal sponsor. In 2022, the department requested an audit of its agreements with a subsequent fiscal sponsor, Bayview Hunters Point Foundation, which served as the fiscal sponsor of UCHS from February through September 2022. Following this audit, the fiscal sponsorship agreements were then transferred to UCHS's fourth fiscal sponsor, Felton Institute. Next slide, please. The audit looked at the six programs listed on this slide under grant agreements between HSH and Bayview Hunters Point Foundation. The six agreements had a total not to exceed amount of 36 million, nearly 28 million of which was allocated to UCHS as the direct service provider. Two housing programs are funded by HUD and four are city funded. Next slide. The audit had as its objectives to verify the eligibility of participants and expenditure of grant funds in accordance with grant agreements or applicable laws, as well as assess the department's management and oversight. The audit focused on participants and expenditures as of July 2022. Next slide. Overall, the audit found that UCHS did not comply with eligibility, expenditure, and record-keeping requirements outlined in its fiscal sponsorship agreements, especially related to the two HUD-funded programs. Specifically, UCHS did not adhere to eligibility requirements to refer tenants through HSH's coordinated entry system, and therefore could be ineligible. We found that 24 of 29 sample tenants, or 83%, were not appropriately prioritized or did not have the required eligibility documentation such as verification of homelessness or disability. We also found that most of this documentation was not in the system of record as required. 
When reviewing income calculations for our sample, we found that 19 or 66% of 29 sample tenants had their incomes calculated incorrectly by UCHS when they entered either program, which may have resulted in incorrect tenant rent paid. The audit also identified three UCHS employees who were enrolled into one of the two HUD-funded programs without going through the required assessment and referral process. As a result, it is unclear if or how they were prioritized over other potential program participants in need of housing. We also identified at least 16 other active employees who were on the tenant roster for one of the programs as of August 2022. Another finding related to these two HUD programs was that USHS collected at least 108,000 in tenant rent from March through August 2022 without department approval and had not turned over at least 30,000 to the fiscal sponsor as of the following month, although required by the department. Last on this slide, UCHS did not provide adequate support when submitting expenditures to Bayview Hunters Point Foundation across its programs, creating a backlog of unpaid and unreconciled expenditures. Next slide. The report also identified deficiencies in HSH's oversight and management of these agreements. Specifically, the department did not adequately monitor the two HUD-funded programs and did not comply with its grant agreements in terms of its own responsibilities as part of the program enrollment process. Although HSH more actively monitored the general fund agreements, its program monitoring procedures did not always accurately capture whether UCHS had met all of its service and outcome objectives. Ultimately, both the 2017 and 2022 audits identified repeated instances of noncompliance and, in, and, and inadequate controls over fiscal processes, raising the question as to whether this fiscal sponsorship model is the appropriate structure for UCHS when it has not been able to demonstrate that it could meet the city's requirements of financial stability or compliance with program operations and documentation requirements. Um, our final slide, please. The report included 14 recommendations. Key recommendations include that the department should consider terminating grant agreements with UCHS, particularly those funded through federal funds and possible transfer of these services. For any continuing services, we recommended that the department also review the current structure and services provided to reconsider whether the fiscal sponsorship structure is the best model for UCHS to address its internal control deficiencies. We also recommended that the department require UCHS to stop collecting tenant rent unless amended by the department's grant agreements with the fiscal sponsor and require that UCHS turn over all remaining rental revenue in its possession. Um, other recommendations in this report were around clearer guidance and expectations around each entity's responsibilities. That concludes our presentation. Uh, Mark and I are happy to answer questions after HSH presents. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. Good morning, honorable committee members. Noel Simmons, Chief Deputy Director at the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. Um, I have about eight slides to present this morning. First, I just wanted to thank Mark De La Rosa and Amanda Sobrepena from the Controller's Office for their work on this audit and their continued partnership. I also want to recognize and thank Mr. Al Gilbert, President and CEO of the Felton Institute for being present in the audience this morning. Okay, let's go ahead and tee up our slides. Okay, there we go. 
So the United Council of Human Services has been an HSH-funded provider since the department was created in 2016, at which time we inherited several grants from the Human Services Agency. United Council has operated under a fiscal agent or a fiscal sponsor since 2009 um, due to concerns about the agency's capacity to directly administer public funds in a manner consistent with city expectations. HSH has maintained its partnership with United Council in recent years, um, really because the organization has very deep community ties in the Bayview and has been effective in providing culturally competent services to people experiencing homelessness there for more than 30 years. As a trusted black-led service provider, United Council was uniquely positioned to be able to engage and effectively serve a very highly vulnerable population of San Francisco residents in D10 who might not have accessed services elsewhere. Next slide, please. This slide presents a timeline of key milestones in HSH's funding relationship with United Council. Um, the slide is really here for your reference, and I won't read through all of the details, but just to hit the highlights, um, since HSH took over UCHS grant agreements in 2016, United Council has had three different fiscal sponsors, including Haluna Health from 2017 to 2022, Bayview Hunters Point Foundation for seven months in 2022, and now the Felton Institute as of October 2022. Within the same time frame, uh, the Controller's Office has conducted two audits, as you just heard, of United Council, one published in 2017, and then the one that is the focus of our hearing today. Next slide, please. Um, Again, HSH was actually the one to request the controller's audit uh, last April in response to concerns that were both being raised by United Council's fiscal sponsor at that time and also that were being observed directly by the department. The audit included 14 recommendations for HSH to implement in order to improve oversight of UCHS program administration, as well as compliance with HSH policies and the requirements of our grant agreements. Um, HSH is required to submit six-month follow-up reporting on the audit recommendations, and our first status report was formally submitted just uh, two days ago to the controller's office. Next slide, please. Before I walk you through the status of those recommendations, it's important to note that there has been a change of circumstance since the audit was published last fall, which provides important context to today's status update. Um, first of all, in December of 2022, the Controller's Office placed United Council on red flag status. Uh, this was an outcome of the city's joint nonprofit monitoring program, which jointly monitors uh, city contractors who do business with two or more city departments. Um, it's a review to ensure that contractors are stable and in good financial health. And when contractors fail to meet the fiscal and compliance standards that are developed by the controller's office, one potential outcome is to designate red flag status. That designation is really used to identify nonprofit agencies that are at a high risk of instability to the point that uh, service delivery is jeopardized. Um, nonprofits designated as red flag status are less competitive or may be ineligible for uh, new grants and contracts with the city, 
and defunding is a potential outcome as well. When that designation is placed, there is um, a plan put in place to specify what corrective actions need to be taken in order for the agency to come off of red flag status. That happened in December. Then a couple of months later, in February of this year, the controller's office issued a new policy clarifying that the city cannot legally do business with a nonprofit whose charitable registry status has been revoked or suspended by the state attorney general's office. On March 6 of this year, HSH sent a letter of noncompliance to United Council, advising them that due to its suspended registry status, all continuing program services would be fully transitioned to United Council's fiscal sponsor, the Felton Institute. The department is currently in the process of removing United Council as a subcontractor on all of our direct grant agreements with Felton. And as of March 7th, all HSH funding now flows directly to Felton, and Felton Institute is solely responsible for the delivery of program services. Um, I note all of this and bring it to your attention because this change in circumstance, whereby United Council is no longer a recipient of city funding, made many of the audit recommendations no longer applicable. Next slide, please. So these next three slides, supervisors, um, summarize the 14 audit recommendations. This first slide lists the five recommendations that are no longer applicable due to the circumstances I just described. So terminating grant agreements with United Council, reconsidering whether the fiscal sponsorship structure is the best model for United Council, requiring an MOU between United Council and its fiscal sponsor, developing clearer policies and procedures on the fiscal sponsor's responsibilities, and ensuring that the fiscal sponsor requires United Council to provide complete and adequate documentation to support invoicing. Those recommendations are now effectively moot, given that United Council is no longer a recipient of city funds and no longer under the fiscal sponsorship of Felton Institute. Next slide, please. These six recommendations have all been implemented by the department. Um, we have had prior to uh, the change in status required United Council to cease tenant rent collections and remit rent previously committed to their fiscal sponsor. They did in fact remit over $78,000 back to um, their sponsor. We have added veteran verification requirements to all of our grant agreements. We have required fiscal sponsors to confirm, review, and approve credit card charges before payment. We have developed clearer guidelines that we have now um, reinforced with the Felton Institute around program enrollment processes for the six grants in question. We have conducted recent monitoring of both the Safe Sleep Site and Site F. And we have considered um, and responded to any complaints regarding services by United Council. And then finally, this next slide uh, lists the final three audit recommendations which have been initiated um, and are in process. The department has developed guidance on whether and how not just United Council, but all of our contracted providers are to enroll employees as participants in city-funded programs. We have drafted a department-wide policy that speaks to that issue and expect to issue that policy later this month. 
Similarly, um, the audit instructed us to decide whether United Council should charge fees for program services. The department took that a step further and again de developed a department-wide policy applicable to all of our funded providers, which will be issued later this month. And then finally, we are in the process of amending our continuum of care desk guide to reflect all of the eligibility and documentation requirements for, for programs that are funded through the COC. Final slide, please. Um, in terms of the current status of um, HSH's relationship to United Council, again, United Council is no longer a party to any HSH grant agreements, and no HSH funds are currently being directed to United Council. The department is in the process of negotiating a new agreement with the Felton Institute to provide technical assistance and capacity building support to United Council and its board of directors. This is really with the goal of, again, preserving a nonprofit with deep roots in the Bayview that has the ability to reach and serve a very vulnerable population that is in need of HSH services. And finally, the red flag status designation that I described earlier does remain, despite the fact that United Council has lost city funding. Um, because United Council is not a recipient of city funds, the city will not be monitoring United Council's progress on resolving its red flag status. Importantly, however, if at a future date, United Council has stabilized its operations and wishes to become a city grantee again, the agency would need to demonstrate resolution of the issues that prompted red flag status and demonstrate compliance with the city's administrative standards through fiscal and compliance monitoring in order to have that status designation removed. That concludes my presentation, supervisors. Happy to answer any questions, as I know Mark and Amanda are as well. Thank you so much for those presentations. I do have a couple questions, and you know, I just want to say, and I think I could probably speak for all of us when I say, um, we definitely want our departments to contract with nonprofits that have deep community ties um, in the communities that they work, especially in the Bayview, and we definitely want our nonprofits to provide culturally competent care. I think um, here we just want to make sure that those contracts aren't so mismanaged in a way where an entire city is losing faith in their government and creating um, a lot of negative thoughts about nonprofits in general. So um, definitely very uh, supportive of nonprofits with deep community ties. And, um, you know, it's just we have to make sure that we are working with nonprofits in a way not to create negative um, connotations to um, to that to that work um, I have a few questions for the controller's office and then to HSH um, with regard to I mean this goes back to 2009 why did the city stop contracting directly with uh, UCHS in 2009 um, human services agency was the contracting uh, department at the time and they were contracting directly um, we reported this in the 2017 audit as well but they had found um, deficiencies in UCHS's financial record keeping, and so they had decided to then get a fiscal agent, which was the BBYMCA. Okay. And after that, the first audit was issued in 2017. What follow-up did the city services auditor have with HSH regarding um, UCHS? Yes, we followed up every six months, as we normally do um, after the issuance of the audit report. Um, within 18 months, uh, HSH had 
um, addressed all of our recommendations and we determined them closed. Are there procedures, um, like when and how do departments request that the controller step in to perform an audit on one of their contracts? Are those, do you have those written up anywhere? I don't believe they're written up anywhere, but we do have an annual work planning process where we do meet with all departments. Um, we give ideas of potential audits that we could, um, we would talk about our risk assessments or suggest some audits, and then departments can also bring ideas at that time. But throughout the year, they can also um, contact us and request an audit if they have um, any requests. Okay, thank you for that. Um, and you mentioned the fiscal sponsorship structure might not always be the best, but when is it necessary, do you think, for a nonprofit to utilize that structure, and when would you recommend it? I think that might be a better answer um, for the department. Um, to answer, like fiscal sponsorship models, and what it Are there other nonprofits in the city that use such a structure? We have we don't have a full understanding of the population. Um, it's not data that's captured right now in our city system, um, but it is a plan that we will include that in next year's nonprofit audit planning to to get a better understanding of that. Okay, so we don't have an idea about how. Of all the nonprofits that we contract with, we don't have we don't know how many of them are using a fiscal sponsorship structure. The controller's office does not, but HSH might know for their own department. Okay. Yes. Um, okay. Well, that's something we'll talk about when we talk about the legislation we're working on. Um, okay. I think the next line of questions are for HSH. Um, in terms of um, the Bayview Hunters Point Foundation, I'm curious as to what responsibility they have um, in ensuring there was compliance with the city agreements. And uh, what, will, what responsibility, well, actually Felton's taken over now, so what responsibility are they going to have to ensure this is the case? Uh, Chair Stephanie, so... Felton Institute, to be clear, at this point is not the fiscal sponsor of United Council. They have, we have wholesale transitioned the services agreements that used to be operated by United Council to the Felton Institute, and they are now just delivering those services as a prime contractor through their own employees. Okay, so were the federal grants then awarded to Felton as well? Yes, yes they were. Okay. And how was it that Felton was selected through, how did that come to be without, what is the mechanism for that to happen? Yes, so um, as you know, Bayview Hunters Point Foundation was the prior fiscal sponsor for United Council. They took on that role in February of last year, February 22. Um, after a period of several months, it became clear, I think, both to Bayview Hunters Point Foundation and United Council sort of mutually agreed that this relationship um, was not working out as originally hoped and envisioned, and there was a mutual desire on the part of both organizations to part ways. Um, that request came to the department, and we immediately began to try and identify another organization that was willing and uh, had the right skill set and ability and capacity to step into the fiscal sponsorship role for United Council. Um, you know, our experience has been that forced marriages don't work between a fiscal sponsor and a sponsored organization. It really has to be a partnership that, is, um, that works for both partners. 
We were very grateful that the Felton Institute stepped up and expressed a willingness and ability to serve as the fiscal sponsor. They were able to establish positive rapport with United Council and their board. And so both United Council and Felton Institute felt that they could work together in an effective manner. And the department really just supported that arrangement by then transitioning fiscal sponsorship and the grant agreements from Bayview Hunters Point Foundation to the Felton Institute. Okay, so, but now they're responsible for the delivery of program services as well. That's correct. Okay, how did that come to be? I mean, my, because, I mean, that's, it seems to give it to another with, I mean, with, I don't understand why we didn't do a new RFP and, you know, with sole source contracting, I, how were you able just to give it to another entity? Thank you for the, the question. To clarify, Chair Stephanie, there was a bit of a two-step process. So in October, Felton Institute became the fiscal sponsor for United Council of Human Services. United Council was a subcontractor on those grant agreements, but the grants were already between the department and the Felton Institute in, in that step one of the process. Step two of the process occurred in March of this year when we had no choice but to remove direct city funds from flowing to United Council because they had run afoul of the state charitable registry requirement. And so pursuant to the controller's policy on charitable registry, we were asked as a department to come up with a transition plan for programs and services being delivered by United Council. And that transition plan was really just to leave the grant agreements where they already were with the Felton Institute, but to remove United Council as a subcontractor on those agreements so that they now reside wholly with Felton. Okay, so Felton was a subcontractor and a fiscal sponsor at the same time? Uh, In October, that was the case, yes. Okay. Okay. And how did you determine that Felton was able to deliver the services? Given, I mean, just we, uh, we've heard of staffing shortages and things like that. Were you able to, and this has happened before on another thing, were you able to determine they were going to deliver the services in a way that, um, that would be effective? Thank you for that question. Yes, department leadership and Felton Institute leadership had a number of conversations before they moved into the fiscal sponsor role to again make sure that this was a good fit, that the services that United Council at that time was delivering were consistent with the mission of the Felton Institute to ensure that Felton felt as though they had adequate capacity to take this on. Um, We also Uh, entered into a new standalone fiscal sponsorship agreement with the Felton Institute back in October that funded them basically for their administrative costs and and the infrastructure that they needed to be able to adequately serve as the fiscal sponsor. And to date, I would just note that Felton has been an extremely responsive partner and we don't have any indication that they have lacked the capacity to manage these agreements. Thank you. I have nothing further at this time. Thank you, Supervisor Chan. Thank you, Chair Preston. Um, I I have two parts questions, and I think the first part is really for the controller um, to just come, kind of help me understand, and it's just piggyback on what um, Vice Chair uh, Stephanie was uh, kind of questioning, really about, you know, I think the process of identifying problematic or problems uh, with our uh, nonprofit 
contractors while we appreciate, of course, always wanting to make sure that we have cultural and language competent, you know, uh, organizations. Now, I, I just want to flag one thing that it, it's very similar as I'm looking at the uh, uh, Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing's presentation on slide three just since August 2016 about uh, United Council and the history of it. And it actually kind of reminds me of the Positive Resource Center in Baker Place that has been an ongoing issue for quite some time, talking about mergers of the two nonprofits, uh, looking at just the finances of it. Uh, you know, these are, the, obviously it's a different city department, but again, what is the controller's role? Like, this doesn't really, like, it seems like there's, didn't happen until one, you have the joint nonprofit audit and report, and then, and then, or until the Felton Institute as a, co, as a fiscal agent to say something is wrong with this and you must audit this. Um, so help me understand, when does the controller actually step in? Sure, and I, I can, uh, certainly answer that question, Supervisor, from an audit lens, and, and we do have um, um, my colleague from the um, City Services Auditor, City Performance Team that is more um, uh, charged with the uh, citywide nonprofit monitoring program. Uh, but from an audit perspective, as Amanda mentioned earlier, um, we do um, get input from various departments uh, as part of our work planning process, and we also do our own risk assessment. But to supplement that on the controller's um, city performance side, there is an ongoing effort uh, that's basically working with uh, the departments to monitor uh, a contract uh, compliance. Yes, I mean, I remember, like, we had a uh, presentation at GAO before, or at this uh, committee before, you know, $50,000 and above, and then, like, you know, you, if you have more than one city department contract, and, and there's, like, a process of uh, auditing, I, I recall that process. But, again, the question would be, how is it then, even with that protocol in place, this is since 2016, clearly that it's an agency that seems to have issues. I understand that, you know, the so-called of we can't force people to, you know, there's a, a, not a forced marriage or a forced partnership or merger or whatever it is that, you know, this, it's not really on the cities. Still, I mean, that, wouldn't we not consider that somewhat of a red flag and, and to say, hey, you know, we, we see that this is, again, had different kind of fiscal sponsors since 2017. No, no flagging. The decision to contract, um, and this is when we would defer to the department, is certainly a management a decision uh, for the department to make. Uh, I think from an audit perspective, we certainly are in the business of providing recommendations uh, to uh, address any of the observations that we have, uh, but I would defer to the department in terms of uh, the decision to uh, continue uh, working with certain organizations. Sure, and I guess then that is a, the, the question for the, you know, since you actually inherited the agreement, from a human services agency, and you, you've been, again, you know, the slide three about all this timeline. And, and I think that, so for that question, so first of all, it's, it's you know, having it since 2016 or, or even 2017, identifying that this is an agency has been, you know, going under to different um, fiscal agents. Uh, and, and then I do actually do also want to question about 
what then and besides the fact that hey they are now in red flag status so we can no longer contract uh, with them and therefore some even some of the audit recommendations no longer applicable because we just have to stop that relationship it, that is like very so, so if you can walk us through just a little bit more like it's it's a really long time from from 2017 all the way here Thank you for that question, Supervisor Chan. And I will just start by acknowledging that you're right. There is a pattern of concerning behavior with this particular provider that has extended over a number of years. Um, <clears throat> I think, and I, I do think we are at a bit of a turning point with this particular provider. And there have been some very frank conversations over the most recent months that uh, the status quo is untenable. And that really, at this point, what the department is saying is that, you know, we are willing to continue to support the Felton Institute to provide capacity building support to United Council as sort of a last best final effort to see if this organization can be stabilized and preserved in order to continue serving the community. But if it can't, then... Um, you know, I, I don't see a future in city contracting for this organization, or at least not as a direct prime contractor. I think um, the department takes very seriously its fiduciary responsibility to making sure that public funds are being spent with integrity. Um, we also take very seriously our commitment to deliver needed services to people experiencing homelessness in San Francisco. And what we have found is that in the broader nonprofit community, it's not unusual to have smaller, more grassroots nonprofits who do an excellent job delivering services on the ground, but lack that sort of administrative capacity to do things like payroll, fiscal reconciliation, claiming. And part of our role, I think, as a department is to try to, as best we can, support our nonprofit partners to build the capacity of, of the nonprofit sector to deliver the services that we need to be delivered. We know that we can't deliver and meet the needs of all homeless people in San Francisco directly as a department, we rely critically on our nonprofit network. And there's been a lot of discussion in these chambers and elsewhere about the fact that the nonprofit sector generally is um, often lacking capacity, lacking adequate funding, resources, and infrastructure to effectively meet the service delivery needs of the city. And so we are committed as a department both to fiscal stewardship but also to supporting nonprofit partners to be able to deliver services effectively, and I think that's what you're seeing in this kind of ongoing relationship with United Council. Sure, but you know, in my, just going through all the slides, but both from the controllers uh, as well as your department, you know, what I personally, and then as just in observation, uh, that I actually think ultimately is really back to the city departments itself, the ability to actually identify whether the services is being delivered. And because you actually came up finally, the matrix to measure success. And in my opinion, in this case, is really because of your coordinated entry system that you finally has identified that who is actually getting housing and support and services and that you're tracking individual receiving those services. Therefore, now you actually understand these are the individuals that getting services and 
in this case, housing assignments without going through the coordinated entry uh, system. And that is, I want to say, you know, I'm, I would say I appreciate, you know, Director uh, Shereen Misbadden and her team and like just understand that how critical the work that the, your team has been putting in to develop the coordinated entry system. And I, I look to see it to be successful in the coming months and to actually help us to say, understand services provided to these individuals and tracking them and, and tracking these individuals on the progress. Um, I think uh, I am frustrated. I have to be very honest that I'm frustrated seeing that this uh, time and time again since 2016, it's, it's uh, because it's not just about you know, the integrity that the services provide in the process, but it's most importantly the people that deserve the, the support and, and and really getting through the services that we as a city intend. We spend all these dollars staffing resources and we wanted to reach the people that we want to help. Um, so I think that's where my frustration is that, you know, that is the problem with what we're seeing, the money that we're spending. It doesn't seem like we're delivering the results that, that, that we need. Um, and, and deserve. So th those are my frustration. I think the last question though, is that now that you know clearly some of the audit recommendation no longer apply because you, you seize contracts completely uh, and you're just not even doing business with United Council. What you're doing is now that you're expecting Felton Institute to actually deliver those services. Um, how did you make that decision? And 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 I, I know that it's, it's now that you have to figure out delivery of those services all over again in, in some way. But but how is it that you, you just decided that it will be Felton Institute? I get it that they're the fiscal sponsor, but again, like just instead of figuring out that are there other agencies or organization can do this better or, or just as well, instead of just default to Felton Institute. So Supervisor, Again, Felton Institute, the department already had the grant agreements with Felton Institute when they became the fiscal sponsor. And so when we had to cut off funding to United Council, the natural course of action was simply to remove United Council as a subcontractor because Felton was already delivering the services with its own employees and, and doing a very competent job with that. I think it might also be reassuring to you to understand that Two of the programs that are being operated by Felton are actually in the wind-down phase. Our safe sleep at Jennings Street will be closing by June 30th of this year and Site F by the end of the calendar year. So doing a new procurement for such short-lived agreements didn't seem to make a lot of sense. Um, the two federally funded HUD grants also have to be renewed annually, and so there will be a re-procurement of those services in the late summer or early fall. And if Felton wishes to continue as the provider of those services, they will need to reapply through a competitive process later this summer. So I'm not sure if that answers your question. It does, and because it kind of goes back to like the the, the jam that this body uh, at football have to like sort out uh, for positive resource center and Baker Place and 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 again in that in that uh, space was you know we have all these 
uh, people that in need of the service, and we only have six months of ramp down time to figure out how to place these uh, individuals and or continue to provide the service. In this, in the events, it looks seems like we kind of quote-unquote lucked out, right? That that Feltai Institute actually have the capacity at the moment B because you wouldn't need a subcontractor if if you already have the capacity. Like, I, I'm, I'm walking back that logic a little bit too, is that, okay, so the, the services that we're providing, we wouldn't need a subcontractor in the, if it, Fulton, Fulton can actually just service it, provide that, all those services on its own. We kind of lucked out the fact that it does have the capacity at this moment to help us transition when we can just um, completely stop contracting with uh, United Council. And so the question that back to both city departments, but also probably the controller, um, you know, overall then, how do we in these situation when we identify our subcontractors, even our contractors are, are sort of either in a red flag status, no longer to, capable to provide services, what are the recourse? And, and I think that is, is something for all of us to think about in terms of contracting process and in terms of like, you know, when we do provide services, like how fluid and adaptive can we really be? Um, because ultimately, again, the goal is to, to provide the service uh, because that is our responsibility. And then in, in terms of dealing with contractors, like what, what, are, what are the ways that we could, in a, in a way is like read, like be able to be prepared uh, ourselves uh, much in advance and that is there uh, is there a way to actually through the auditing process that we can actually identify these problems much earlier um, you know in in advance and so that we're not in the six months or less than a year or just a few months situation where we now have numbers of individuals that we have to make sure we take care um, so thank you sorry Thank you so much for your indulgence, Chair. Thank you, Supervisor Chan. Um, I had a couple questions um, for HSH. I'm, I'm curious um, why HSH requested the audit in since a year ago now, April 2022. Like, did some was it? Were there complaints from residents? Was there a whistleblower? Was like what? What transpired that uh, led you at that time to, to request the audit? Thank you, Supervisor Preston. It was really due to some red flags that we were seeing around the ability to adhere to fiscal and compliance requirements uh, of the city. So, <clears throat> excuse me, we were both hearing from the fiscal sponsor at that time, Bayview Hunters Point Foundation, and observing ourselves that um, things were not as they should be. So, for example, we weren't receiving adequate documentation to support invoices that were being submitted to the department to pay. Um, we were seeing improper cost alloc allocation across the different grants, and the fiscal sponsor was coming to the department to say that they, in turn, were struggling to get adequate documentation and adherence to policy from United Council. So it was a bit of an earlier warning of the sort that you're talking about, Supervisor Chan. We thought, this sounds concerning. This sounds similar to issues that were raised in the 2017 audit, and so we requested the controller's office to come in. Thank you. And Mr. De La Rosa, tell me if you can't answer this, because I think you may not be able to answer this. Whistleblower complaints? Were there whistleblower complaints that, that led to 
any of this activity. I, I know there are limits to what you can and can't say, but I'm curious that's, if you can just confirm. That's very yes correct, no. Supervisor uh, Preston. Um, as you know, uh, one thing that we hold very uh, 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 seriously in our whistleblower program is the confiden confidentiality of our of our uh, whistleblower complaints, especially uh, any details on it. But we do report out on kind of the general um, uh, themes that we uh, we investigate as part of our whistleblower program, as part of our quarterly and annual reports. Got it. So the the number of complaints per department, that kind of thing, you report out in the report, but Correct. you can't confirm or deny one way or the other if there's whistleblower activity on a particular contract. Correct. Okay, thank you. Uh, and and while you're up, uh, does UCHS uh, have contracts with other departments as well? I know there's been reference to original contracting with HSA. Uh, we've talked extensively about the contracts with HSH, um, but I'm curious if there are contracts with other departments, and if so, if those have been audited or, or, or not. From our understanding, uh, UCHS did not have any other contracts um, with the city. Got it. Thank you. And then um, there was reference to a the May second update. I don't think that's been provided. That was provided from HSH to the controller. So the controller's office has that now. I don't think the committee's been provided with that. Um, can can you tell us what the status of that is when it will be shared with the committee, and if you're at liberty to share, uh, you or HSH are at liberty to share uh, any of the findings there. Um, as of three weeks ago, we started our process in, in audits division to follow up on all of our recommendations. So this was a citywide effort, which included uh, this UCHS audit. Um, we're still in the process of reviewing uh, the responses from uh, homelessness as well as the other departments as part of that follow-up uh, process. And we will be um, doing our reviews in the coming weeks and, and issuing a public report on the status of recommendations for all of those um, audits that we followed up on um, at the beginning of next fiscal year, so by July, August. Is, is there a reason that we don't have the, that as the, the HSH report that was submitted to you as part, is that a confidential report or is there some reason that's not presented to the committee? It's the latest update. Maybe it's the same as the presentation we it, just got. I don't know, but my my impression, and again, we haven't yet reviewed thoroughly the uh, responses from HSH on this one, um, is that it's consistent with what was rec um, reported uh, in their uh, slides. But I may be mistaken. I would defer to the department on that. Ms. Simmons, do you want to follow up on that? I, I if it's been provided the controller and we're holding this hearing, um, is there is there any reason that? Uh, hasn't been provided to the committee. Supervisor Preston, yes. Um, we did submit that to the controller's office two days ago. The substance of that update is very similar to what I presented in my slides to you today, but I see no reason why we can't provide you with the source document. Thank you. Uh, this, I, I don't know if this is for HSH or the controller or both, um, but are you, we, we, are, are you able to determine the impact of the on services and financially uh, like we've talked extensively about that and, and I want to minimize the compliance issues that are are serious and, and severe and we've talked about those those don't always translate into a failure to deliver services right there are, there are nonprofits that 
violate all kinds of compliance requirements but are out there in the community doing the work they say they're doing. I, I'm curious if there's been ev any effort to, to quantify the, the impact on services or the cumulative financial impact to the city of all of the issues that have been flagged uh, in, in the audit and the follow-up. From our audit um, perspective, we uh, that wasn't part of, of our um, audit that we issued in November. Uh, it wasn't part of our audit scope, so we uh, weren't able to quantify it. And has, has HSH tried to determine that? Supervisor, we haven't quantified them in the way that you're describing. Um, we have monitored recently these sites. Um, and, and you're right, generally speaking, I would say that the programs are meeting their service delivery expectations. Anecdotally, for example, I can share with you that we've heard quite vocally from the Our City, Our Home Committee, the Coalition on Homelessness, that they are very opposed to the closure of Site F because they believe that that is a site that has delivered excellent services that have been um, well received by the people who are receiving services but we haven't done a, qu a quantifiable analysis that we can share with you. Right, thank you. And, and I think just, you know, I mean, you mentioned Site F. I do wanna also note that, uh, that our colleague, President Walton, just uh, introduced a, a resolution uh, at the last, at our board meeting earlier this week to try to, to prevent that, that closure that you announced earlier. So hopefully there'll be a discussion on that. But I, I, I do think it's, I do think it's significant, especially when you're looking at the potential investment of further time and resources in capacity building, technical assistance for a, for a nonprofit, if the problems were primarily compliance issues uh, versus not delivering the services, right? I mean, I, I, would, I would hope and think that would impact the, uh, the appetite for doing the, the additional capacity building and technical support and so forth. So, you know, some effort to, and I, I realize this spans a number of years and is not a simple task, but I do think, you know, some effort to look at whether, whether most or what percent of the service delivery under the contract was actually achieved. And, and I don't know the answer to that, but it sounds like you may have an anecdotal sense, but uh, I think if there if there's a way to to try to get a little more clarity on that, I th I think that would be helpful. Absolutely agree. Thank you, Supervisor. Thanks. And last uh, question I had is just around. I, I had the same reaction that uh, that Supervisor Chan did around just the um, the experience of the PRC situation, and and just certainly notable that Felton is is again you know turned to and or stepping up to deal with a situation um, that, that is pretty, could be pretty devastating in terms of loss of, of services. And I, I'm, I'm curious, um, I'm curious how that happens. Like just what the, the selection process, you know, um, and, and just whether uh, Vice Chair Stephanie asked about, you know, whether there's a RFP process, it sounds like in this situation, there, there isn't. But is this, is this for, for HSH, is this just a situation where there's only one provider that can, can absorb this work? Or do you put the word out to everyone and say, hey, here's a situation we have and we need, you know, a nonprofit to initially be fiscal sponsor and then to take these over? Um, 
It's just for, the, for contracts of this size, if there's not gonna be uh, an RFP process because some of these are existing contracts uh, and aren't, unlike PRC, they're not you're not asking for additional money from the board. That's how a lot of that came to light at the board. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious, since there isn't an RFP process, like can you shed any light on just how, do, how does that happen? That, does, does, does Felton volunteer for that? Is the word put out to all providers or is there only one group in town from your judgment that could do it? Uh, can you shed some light on that? Absolutely. Supervisor, I really want to emphasize first, I think that this is a little bit of an anomalous, unique situation with regard to Felton and United Council. The department's typical process is that when we are procuring a new service or program, we do a process for that. We put out an RFP or an RFQ or a solicitation of interest. It is publicly noticed. Providers all over the city can respond and apply for that funding, and we evaluate those responses according to you know, the procurement response, the budget that was submitted, and so forth. So that is very much our typical process. In this particular instance, as I've explained, the first decision was really around what organization was well-suited and willing to step into the fiscal sponsor role for United Council. And so again, that was not a procurement. It was really more of a, a discussion process with a few other organizations to find one that was willing and able to take on the fiscal sponsor role, and that was Felton. Once Felton was in the fiscal sponsor role, that then dictated our second decision as a department to transition these agreements wholesale to Felton when we could no longer fund United Council as a subcontractor. So you're correct, it did not go through, it didn't go through the board because these agreements weren't over $10 million. Uh, it did not go through our Homeless Oversight Commission, although these types of things would in future. Our commission is meeting for the first time today. Um, but we did um, have authority to enter into that agreement with Felton. You, as you know, in uh, 2019, I believe, the Board of Supervisors approved Emergency Ordinance 6119, which relaxed the contracting requirements that HSH has to adhere to. We are not required to go through uh, the regular competitive process before entering into contractual agreements under that board ordinance. So I guess I'm still trying to get at, so it, it started as fiscal sponsorship, then transitioned to them taking over the contracts. But what I still have, I, and, and I'm not dispute, I'm not saying this needed a RFP process. I, or suggest that under existing law. Um, but I, I, am, I still, what I haven't heard is, do, do you put, when you're in an emergency situation of this type, do you put out the word to a range of nonprofits, here is the need, whether you do a formal, you know, competitive process or not, do you put out the word and say, this is, this is the amount of contracts, these are the services being provided, we need a fiscal sponsor, or we need to transition, or, or, or do you just in-house decide, here's a nonprofit we have a relationship with, or here's the only nonprofit we think can do this? I, I, I think I'm still asking for if you can shed any light on just the process, because these are pretty big contracts that aren't going through a competitive process, and I mean, bless them if Felton is stepping up to deal with two very um, messy situations, both the PRC situation and this situation. So uh, it's, it's not a, a 
comment, you know, one way or the other on, on Felton, but I am trying to get with, with, no, with no review by an oversight board, no review by the Board of Supervisors, we're here in this hearing, can you, can you tell us how you pick and do you put it out to others uh, in this unusual situation? Again, Supervisor, 99.9% .9 of the time we do a public process. We post a notice that funding is available, we accept applications, and we evaluate them. In this particular instance, because the fiscal sponsorship relationship between Bayview Hunters Point Foundation and United Council was on very precarious footing, we were under pressure to move quickly to identify a new fiscal sponsor in order to preserve continuity of services in the community, which was our, our primary concern. And so in this case, it was a different process that was really seeing who was available and who had the adequate capacity to assume this role and who United Council could work with effectively as a fiscal sponsor. And so it was a more informal um, inquiry process and, and a series of conversations that we had with other providers before we selected Felton. Thank you. If there are no other comments or questions right now, uh, let's go ahead and open this item up for public comment. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Are there any members of the public who would like to make public comment on item number four? Please line up along the curtain wall to your right. For the remote public call-in members, please press star three to be added to the speaker queue. For those already on hold, please continue to wait until the system indicates that you have been unmuted. You may approach the podium. Okay, we have uh, the deputy director of HSA. You know, the person like this comes here and says, I don't see a future relationship with this um, contractor, with the city anymore. It's about power. They're, this is an agency, HSA agency, individual uh, director says, I don't see a future with this contracting, uh, with, the, with this company contracting um, with the city anymore. So it's about power. And they have the controller here. They, you know, they have all the lawyers here, the city employees, and they tell you that. And, you know, who, United Council has been, has been giving services to the city has been providing services to residents. Does United Council have a say? Does any, is anybody gonna listen to the United Council? Does United Council have, uh, can, can, can it um, uh, assert its privacy and being able to administer its services to the city? Can it assert privacy for United Council? If a company is like a child, United Council is a private company, it's like a child, you know, it's, 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 it's an entity. So. Does an entity have a right to privacy? And is that child ever going to grow up to become an adult and come here and say anything about it? You know what I mean? Is, is, does the entity ever going to, you know, is it ever going to have a say? No, no. So there are people in charge of this. It's just not just here in this room. There are people in charge who know, who can see me, who, who know I'm here, who know I'm saying a lot of things about what you know, I counsel. And uh, why? Why are you doing this? You know, why are you doing this? At the end of the day, that's what it comes down to. Why? Uh, so that's what we all want to know. Because this is a big, big, it sounds like a crime to me, right? You got a United Council here? It sounds like a crime, right? You know? Anybody else want to say anything about it? Is there a press? You know? Is there, is, you know, anybody here? A reporter? You know? Thank you for your comments. Are there any other members of the public that would like to speak to this item that are here in the chamber? Seeing no additional speakers in the chamber. 
We currently have one listener with zero in the speaking queue. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Public comment on this item is now closed. Uh, Vice Chair Stephanie, uh, thank you for calling this hearing. Um, and um, we'll turn it back over to you for any closing remarks and to let us know how you want to proceed. Thank you, Chair Preston. And I want to thank everyone for coming and presenting today and to my colleagues for your um, incredible questions. I think we're all on the same page here, um, especially with regard to how contracts get turned over when things like this happen. And I just want to reiterate, too, um, what um, Ms. Simmons said in terms of really working with and building up people in our community um, and working with nonprofits that do have deep community ties and that are providing culturally competent care. I think that's very important. And it's really on us as a city to um, work with them when we are contracting with them to make sure that they're doing a good job and in intervening in a way and monitoring contracts in a way and that's helping them deliver the services we want them to deliver. Uh, I do remain concerned that, you know, concerns were raised back in 2009 and then 2017, and here we are in 2023 at this hearing, rightfully raising our concerns about um, these issues. So uh, I will continue to work on legislation with the controller's office on how we better monitor our nonprofit contracts, and I look forward to um, providing that uh, copy of that legislation soon. And for now, I think we'll just uh, file the hearing, so I'll make that motion to file the hearing. Thank you. On that uh, motion, Madam Clerk, please call the roll. Vice Chair Stephanie. Stephanie, I. Member Chan. Chan, I. Chair Preston. Aye. Preston, I. There are three ayes. Thank you. That motion passes. Any further business before the committee? There's no further business before the committee. We are adjourned. Thank you. Thank you.